Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus standoff, Democrats want trillions more. Republicans say, not right now. Beyond borders, the European Union's plan to save the summer. And on Paw Patrol, the robotic dog barking about social distancing. It doesn't really bark. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, as always, and a positive note to begin the show this morning about global recoveries from COVID-19. More than one and a half million people around the world have now recovered from the virus. That's more than 230,000 people here in the United States alone. The battle clearly isn't over. There are many challenges to come as the recovery reality dawns. But people are fighting through this, and I do think we need reminding of that fact, too. All right, let's kick off uh, the recovery reality, unfortunately, driving Wall Street lower on Tuesday following a sobering assessment of the health challenges by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Though, as you can see, we are bouncing this morning pre-market. Fed Chair Jay Powell will be in focus this hour. He's speaking at the Peterson Institute. He's persistent, Powell, at least in my mind. Expect further assurances that more help will come if needed. If you remember on the show yesterday, Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan said that Congress will need to act again too, and the highest reward on investment right now is on testing and on tracing. Well, that's a global story as the economic fallout from the shutdowns continues. Earlier today, Eurozone industrial output saw the largest drop on record, that taking European stock markets lower. Asia stocks also had a mixed session, as you can see. The economic argument for reopening, I think, is pretty clear wherever you look around the world. Health crisis aside, the question is, are people confident to find some kind of new normal? Well, a brand new CNN poll shows that 58 percent of Americans at least remain uncomfortable returning to their regular routines. Though key for me, the majority do still believe that this is a temporary obstacle. Maintaining that confidence as we embark on reopening is key. Let's get to the drivers because Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, the Democrats making the case well and truly here for the need for more stimulus and in whopping size. The Republicans all the way along have said we want to gauge the gaps, we want to fill them. But as I called it, the reality here of the recovery is stark and the challenges are going to be persistent. That's absolutely right. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, said to think big. And certainly what they've put on the mm. table here is big. It's, it's an aspirational uh, a plan, though. It's what they would really like to get. This is the disappointment, by the way, of some progressives who wanted even more direct assistance um, for American families in the terms of uh, money in the bank. But, you know, Republicans want to wait here. They say that they've used the word pause or a lack of urgency. Uh, I don't know how many more economic reports, though, can go going, keep going by with the Republicans saying they want to pause. I think both will need to start horse trading here because this bridge they're trying to build toward recovery, it hasn't been all the way built yet. And the decisions have to be made pretty quickly, too, on whether you're going to expand benefits, whether you're going to rejig them in some way, rather than perhaps paying people to stay at home. Is there a better way? And we've talked about it many times of trying to get workers back into the workforce, even if they're doing nothing at this stage. The alarm bells, though, are ringing. Food prices rising, other prices dropping. The last thing you want to see is persistence in those kind of cycles, too. 
Absolutely. And small businesses failing. You know, we saw a study, really interesting study showing that maybe 100,000 of these are gone altogether. Two, two percent of small businesses already uh, have folded. You know what I'm hearing a lot of, Julia, and I bet you are, too, uh, from small business owners who like more flexibility with the Paycheck Protection Plan, you know, the PPP. And if there's any further small business relief, which they hope there will be, that there's a little more flexibility in how they use that money and how long they have to pay it back, because some of them feel a little bit boxed in at the moment, because there is still so much uncertainty of what the recovery is going to look like and what the transition to that phase is going to look like. Yeah, there's such a stark contrast between the approach taken by some European nations and by the United States. You give these small businesses money, they have to pay their workers for eight weeks. But then what? Particularly if you're in the restaurant industry, for example, the hospitality industry, eight weeks doesn't buy you enough time to get back to anywhere near what normal was just a few months ago. And that's one of the big challenges here. Yeah, that was a calendar fluke here. It was one as one small business owner told me that, you know, the eight weeks, who decided eight weeks? Uh, Because the virus doesn't work on eight week cycles. And certainly what we're seeing in terms of the opening is much more gradual and nuanced than just certainly turning the lights back on and going back to normal. And it has to be that way, because otherwise you risk a increase in, in cases very quickly. And then we go back to the beginning again. Plenty of challenges. Christine Romans, thank you so much for that. To Russia now, where the coronavirus crisis continues to deepen, the country now has the second highest number of cases worldwide after the United States. The virus has even reached President Putin's inner circle. His spokesman is in hospital with COVID-19. Matthew Chance joins us now on this story. Matthew, I think we need context here because what we found in other nations around the world is the more you test, the more cases you find. Is that the case with Russia as well? I think it is to a certain extent, yes. Yeah. I mean, they have been uh, increasing the amount of people they've been testing on a daily basis, and that's led to that huge upsurge in figures that we've seen for 11 consecutive days now, uh, more than uh, 10,000 people uh, being tested positive for coronavirus. It brings to more than 240,000, the number of uh, actual national cases that they've officially uh, recorded. That, as you mentioned, is the highest in the world after the United States. Um, but, I mean, there is a lot of scepticism about those figures, you know, partly because the testing's still escalating, partly because they just haven't reached, you know, some people in the country is a vast country, of course, uh, to get them tested. The mayor of Moscow, for instance, says that his screening studies indicate that as many as 300,000 people uh, in his city alone are infected with coronavirus. So if you extrapolate that across the entire country, obviously there's a huge amount of upside when it comes to the final grim uh, tally of coronavirus victims uh, inside Russia. And so it's still going to be, you know, whichever way you cut it, a country that is very severely affected, partly because of the testing increasing, partly because of the measures they took early on. They seem to think it wasn't going to affect them. You know, how wrong could they have been? I mean, the majority of the cases, or at least half of the cases, are centred in what we're calling the epicentre there, which is Moscow, to your point. But it comes as President Putin has announced relaxing measures elsewhere in the country. How do we see that playing out and how much cautiousness are you hearing about the challenges of maintaining lockdown in, in Moscow and relaxing elsewhere? Well, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, Russia's a unique place in the sense that it's the world's biggest country. I mean, there's, you know, you know, multiple time zones stretching, you know, to borders with Japan on, on one side of the country to borders with the, you know, with the European Union on the, on the other side. Uh, and so it's, it's a, you know, a, a, a separate case. 
Um, and what Vladimir Putin's done and what the federal government's doing is saying, look, you know, in general, from May the 12th, so from a day or so ago, we're lifting the sort of nationwide restrictions. But with the big caveat that he was leaving it up to individual governors, individual mayors of certain regions uh, to either tighten restrictions in their specific area or to loosen them as they uh, saw fit. I mean, the other uh, issue, of course, which all countries and Russia in particular is having to deal with, is that they need to get their economy uh, kick-started again. Um, they've yeah. suffered enormously because of the, the, the lockdown, the closure of all their economic output. And so one of the things they've done in Moscow, even though ordinary people are still being kept in their homes, essentially, um, they're saying to factories and to other essential businesses that now is the time to start going back to work. Yeah, one blanket rule does not work here. You have to be uh, more precise, particularly when you want to try and get the economy going again. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for that. To India now, where Prime Minister Modi has announced a massive financial aid package. The government set to spend over $260 billion, around 10% of GDP we're talking. The nation now has 75,000 coronavirus cases, according to John Hopkins University. John Terrace joins us with more. John, it's a mix of spending and reforms, and we'll get into both. Let's talk spending first. It's a monster-sized mm. package, it seems. How much of this is new, newly announced spending? Well, you know, it's interesting, Julia, because $266 billion is 10 times the amount when we first had this conversation, right, saying that was not going to be uh, enough. Uh, Prime Minister Modi kind of laid the foundation yesterday, and he's letting his finance minister build the framework. Namila Sitharatham, who was the former commerce and industry minister, and quite shrewd here. What is new and what was clear as a priority uh, is that they want to target the spending to the needy and to micro and small and medium-sized enterprises, if you will. So only thing we heard today is $60 billion of the 266. So there's more to come over the next two days. When it comes to the needy, a direct spending on health care to deal with the coronavirus, and these regional bank accounts that are set up for the rural Indians, this takes up $20 billion of that budget. It's not insignificant. And then the SME sector, $40 billion. And if you dig into the detail here, they're saying, look, we're going to put a grace period, for example, of six months to meet your obligations under government contracts. We'll provide guaranteed loans uh, from the banks to make sure you get the liquidity going forward. And this is a crisis in India because the growth is only pegged at 1.9% this year. Um, that was before the crisis. And then we saw industrial output drop by 16%, Julia. So we're not getting all of what's in the package today. But there's no lack of detail, and they're targeting it really at the bottom rungs of society in India. Yeah, I can't help but make the contrast as we were just talking about $3 trillion there for the United States and what, a 330 million population versus 1.3 billion and the size of this package. But there's a, there's a message in there somewhere, John. I do want to talk about reforms because I think there's other ways that the Indians are being shrewd here about perhaps looking at their supply chains, looking at what the world is doing. And if we do see a shift away from China, investment companies in China in particular, can India benefit? Critical. Well, it could, well, it could backfire at the same time, Julia. And I'm glad you started there because one of the central themes for Prime Minister Modi yesterday when he laid out the architecture I'm talking about, uh, he keep on, kept on talking about self-reliance. And that could be defined as protectionism. You talked about the supply chains. Uh, perhaps they feel like they're overly dependent on imports at this stage. So all new government contracts here will be protected for national industries 
at least in this time frame over the uh, the 2020-21 fiscal year. So it's April to March. The other thing that stood out for me here, 60% of household income is still dependent on the farming sector. We did not see farm reforms. No labor reforms here that uh, big industrial groups are calling out. But as I noted before, we're about a quarter of the way there, and more details will follow. Uh, but we have to remember, this is an economy that was growing at 8% a year, the pride and joy of made in India by Prime Minister Modi start exporting to the world. But the fir first hint of this, though, uh, as you're suggesting, is self-reliance. We want to make it here, keep it here, and kind of block imports. And it backfired last year, and that's why we saw that horrendous growth of 4.2%. That's a steep drop cut in half to what India's used to. Yeah, and it's, um, it's a tough decision when the whole world's suffering and growth everywhere is falling. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. Europe is promising to reopen for the summer holidays as it looks for ways to rescue the travel and tourism industry. The European Commission has unveiled a series of proposals for a safe restart. Richard Quest joins me now. Richard, this is one of the huge questions, not only for Europe, but other big nations. I think the United States is also looking at this. How do you reopen borders within the EU? But what about international travellers coming in too? Talk us through the proposals here. Okay, so it's a long document with many subsections and clauses and being typical of the European Union, it is extremely complicated. Uh, the gist of it, though, is this. How do you reopen the Schengen borders so that European EU nationals can travel between the various countries. And I see this morning that Angela Merkel is suggesting that the middle of June might be a good time when all Schengen borders could be reopened. Now, a lot of what the EC is suggesting is pretty much common sense, ensuring that hotels have proper sanitary conditions, putting in place proper infectious proce uh, control procedures and the like. But what I think will be most welcome by the travel industry is this aim of creating a level playing field so that you, you know, for instance, Julia, when this country or this region or this city is able to open. Has it met the criteria? Does its epidemiological oh. basis rival? Is it the same and the status the same as all the other countries? I'm so glad you used that word because that means I don't have to now. Epidemiological. Similar epidemiological situations. Yes. You see, you were better than me, actually. But this is key for me. If we hone in on a country like Greece that seems to have handled this so incredibly well, they also want to attract more tourists, but their situation is perhaps far stronger than other nations. How does that work? They make a choice between the revenue generation of, of tourists coming from countries that actually have a worse profile, not going to use the word, than, than themselves. Right. So they've made that choice already. The Greek tourism minister, uh, forgive the plug on Quest Green's business, basically said they were going to open up provided they could do it safely and they believe that they can. The issue, of course, is how do you get people there? Now, what I do foresee as a result of what the EC's document says, I think you're going to get a lot of old-fashioned motoring holidays. You're going to get people going across the border, Germany to, to Austria, within the Benelux countries, uh, things like that, the same in Scandinavia, because you can get home. You're not, you're not at the mercy of an airline. However, airlines are now also saying they're going to start flying again. Ryanair says it will reopen 40% of its routes, not frequencies, 40% of its routes 
by the middle of June too. So I foresee a summer, as one of the European commissioners said today, Europe is ready for a break. And I think what you're going to see is people being hesitant to get on planes in case it doesn't work out, A, because of their safety, and B, because they're not sure there'll be a flight back. And B, I think you're going to see a lot of people taking motoring or train holidays throughout Europe. It won't be anything like 2019, but there will be holidays to be had. Yeah, I think it's a, we're going to see a rise in staycations. I look at what some of the data from Airbnb yeah. have already suggested, and people are planning yeah. holidays, but they're going to stay actually within their nation's borders right. and just what? not take the risk of traveling across them. One, one quick point to make. The difference between the United States and the EU. Uh, don't forget, the US, you can travel anywhere, and a state can only bar people from all states going to it. Right. They can't pick and choose and say, we're not going to have from New York. Rhode Island learned that. In the EU, at the moment, Schengen is de facto suspended. So the goal, first and foremost, if you're going to get intra-European travel, is to get Schengen back on track. And as I say, Merkel this morning is suggesting June, middle of June, will be the date by which that will be in place. Yeah, you know, that's a quite fascinating comparison. Actually, the Airbnb um, data that I was pointing to, I think, was the Netherlands, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. But um, in the United States, yeah. I yeah. was looking at the yeah. consumer confidence data and intentions of going on holidays are as low as they were in the 1970s. You have to go back decades. So the differences, I think, is going to be really quite fascinating to watch. Do we have the confidence to go on holiday? We definitely need it. Richard Quest, thank you so much for that. I remember the 1970s. I don't. <laughs> Wasn't even a twinkle in an eye. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Uh, some breaking news this morning as well. The former Trump campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, has been released from prison, citing potential risks from the coronavirus. He'll be confined at home with his wife in northern Virginia. As of yesterday, the prison in Pennsylvania, where Manafort was being held, had no reported cases of coronavirus. Manafort was jailed in June of 2018 for bank and tax fraud and foreign lobbying-related crimes. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. Coming up, mechanical menace or a medical miracle? The robot out on social distancing patrol and helping in hospitals. We've got all the details. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move, where we're looking at a mixed open now for U.S. stocks as Fed Chair Jay Power repeats his promise to do more if necessary to support the U.S. economy. Powell speaking at this hour before the Peterson Institute via teleconference. You're looking at live pictures there. He once again noted, though, the limits of the Federal Reserve's powers, reminding investors that the Fed has lending powers and not spending powers. He urged Congress to do more. These are Powell's first comments, of course, on the U.S. economy since the release of the April jobs report last Friday, which showed a historic drop in U.S. employment. His comments also coming after two days of historically low reads on both consumer and wholesale price inflation. In the meantime, shares of Grubhub are pulling back a little pre-market after an almost 30 percent rise on Tuesday. The shares rallied on reports that Uber could make a takeover offer for the food delivery service. Some of the pandemic winners once again in focus. 
Now, certainly not winning here. UK growth shrank by 5.8% in March as the shutdown, the shutdown took hold. Excuse me. That's the worst decline since monthly record keeping began back in 1997. But British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says the country cannot reopen the economy too fast. We are watching intently what is happening uh, in other countries. And it is very notable that in some other countries where relaxations have been introduced, there is the signs of the R going up again. And that's a very clear warning to us not to proceed uh, too fast uh, or too reckless. Anna Stewart live from London. Anna, it's good to hear that um, some leaders are looking around the world and recognising some of the challenges of restarting and, and steady but surely here. But the damage from just what a handful of days in March have shut down very clear in these March numbers. I think that's the real concern. So a contraction mm. of 5.8% in March, that's the same as the year and a half after the financial crisis, that kind of economic contraction. And there were actually only seven working days in which the UK was under lockdown, which is why actually it didn't contract as much as much of Europe, which started lockdowns earlier. Now, speaking to economists today, Julia, uh, the numbers come as no surprise. What the question is, though, what will the recovery look like? When will it be? Uh, we do expect the second quarter, of course, to be much, much worse than the first. Uh, we were speaking last week about the Bank of England's forecast. They were pointing to a 25% contraction for the second quarter, but a V-shaped recovery with the economy rebounding by the end of next year. Economists today crunching this data see that recovery much, much later, perhaps at the end of 2022. More of a U-shape, perhaps. Now, any kind of economic recovery will be, as you say, contingent on, on businesses getting back to normal and slowly easing the economy back into gear. Today in England, those that cannot work from home have been encouraged to go back to work. It looks very different in workplaces, social distancing, lots of new measures. UK uh, car plants were some of the first factories to reopen. They've taken the lead from Europe. Uh, it's a very slow start uh, back to manufacturing. Take a look. Back to work, but it's not back to normal. Masks, hand washing and social distancing have become a part of production lines across Europe. Ferrari and Fiat in Italy, Volkswagen in Germany. And now plants are reopening in the UK, Aston Martin and Bentley. The production process has been overhauled. Bentley has introduced 250 new measures to keep workers safe. A process that means they're only making half the number of cars they normally would. Going down to 50% of capacity allows us to slow down the process, separate people that would normally be working closely together, as well as then adding in protection equipment, gangways, gauges, markers everywhere, perspex screens, face masks, cleaning equipment, wherever you can imagine it. He says 50% capacity isn't feasible long term. A quarter of Bentley's workers remain on the government's furlough scheme, and some have already been let go. 20% of our total workforce are temporary, uh, and we've let about a quarter of those go. It was a tough environment for car makers in Europe even before the pandemic. Jaguar Land Rover, Daimler and Ford had already announced job cuts. Then, under lockdown, car sales took an unprecedented slump. In April, new car sales in the UK fell over 97%. It was a similar story across the continent. Even if these car makers can return to 100% production capacity, 
and car dealerships reopen. The future is uncertain. Will it ever go back to normal? It's hard to say, but our, our research suggests that historically deep recessions have taken about three years for an industry to fully recover to pre-crisis levels. And I think that at the moment there's no evidence that this time it's going to be significantly faster than that. Demand may return, but how factories operate may never go back to pre-pandemic norms. Incredibly challenging times for a sector that was already under so much pressure. And speaking to analysts uh, on the auto sector, they do expect to see an acceleration in consolidation and partnerships because ultimately, even after this crisis in the years that follow, they have to keep investing big time to get ahead in autonomous driving and electric right. cars. None of that stops. The challenge just gets greater. Julia? Yeah, it's so true. And to your point, we just don't know what recovery looks like because it's health crisis dependent. You'll see a mathematical V some kind of bounce back, but it's what then? Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. Great job there. All right, counting down to the market open. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We're at the midway point of the trading week and U.S. stocks are seeing a bit of a mixed open this morning. As you can see, we've been chopping around pre-market too. Fetcher J. Powell pretty much stuck to the script as we expected during an online interview with the Peterson Institute a little while ago. Powell once again saying the Fed will do what's required to help support the economy. But he said too, that the Fed has no intention of cutting its benchmark rate to below zero. We've talked and we talked yesterday on the show about negative rates. Well, that was Jay Powell saying not happening. Powell's comments come as Goldman Sachs warns that the U.S. unemployment rate could peak at 25 percent, rivaling the worst of the Great Depression. In the meantime, famed investor Stanley Druckenmiller says the risk reward for buying stocks right now is as bad as he's ever seen. He believes government stimulus plans won't be enough. The question is, what will? Health crisis. Tackle that first. Dr. Anthony Fauci, a key member of the White House Coronavirus Task Force, says it's also not likely that a vaccine can be developed before schools start this fall. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen has all the details. It's the holy grail, a vaccine against COVID-19. At a Senate hearing Tuesday, Frank talked from Dr. Anthony Fauci about the prospects of making that happen. Vaccine clinical trials in humans have started. And if we are successful, we hope to know that in the late fall and early winter. That means no COVID-19 vaccine in time for the start of school. The idea of having treatments available or a vaccine to facilitate the re-entry of students into the fall term would be something that would be a bit of a bridge too far. Even at the top speed we're going, we don't see a vaccine playing in the ability of individuals to get back to school this term. And Fauci was clear, we might not end up getting a vaccine. First of all, there's no guarantee that the vaccine is actually gonna be effective. You can have everything you think that's in place and you don't induce the kind of immune response that turns out to be protective and durably protective. Still, he does think a vaccine will happen. Putting all those things together, Senator Burr, I still feel cautiously optimistic that we will have a candidate that will give some 
degree of efficacy. As far as treatments go, there's only one that's been shown to work against COVID-19, the antiviral medicine remdesivir, which shaves about four days off a hospital stay. But the distribution of remdesivir by the federal government has been inconsistent, with one leading Democratic lawmaker calling it bungled. I think we can all agree upon the fact that we learned a lot of lessons from the remdesivir situation. Dr. Stephen Hahn, commissioner of the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, saying they'll keep those lessons in mind as the pandemic continues. I think valuable lessons can be learned and will be learned with respect to other therapies and to vaccines in particular, and we must incorporate those into our um, operational plans moving forward. And he says as time goes on, doctors are learning more about what drugs COVID patients need. I'll give you an example. We do know that in some uh, uh, circumstances, uh, patients who've had severe COVID disease have developed thrombotic or clotting type episodes. And so we prioritize a review of agents that we think might be beneficial. All part of the race to save lives, or better yet, to prevent infection. And it was clear from this hearing that the race is far from over. Elizabeth Cohen, CNN reporting. Pennsylvania-based Innovio is one of the pharmaceutical biotech firms racing to find a potential vaccine. Dr. Joseph Kim is the president and CEO of Innovio Pharmaceuticals and joins us now. Dr. Kim, fantastic to have you on the show. Just give my viewers a sense of your timeline to begin. Where are you with that research? Dr. Kim, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, fantastic. Okay, great. Welcome to the show. Um, I'll just repeat that quickly. Where are you in terms of your timeline in your research? Our team is working day and night to uh, make our vaccines uh, tested for its safety and efficacy. Our phase one clinical trial is going very well. Uh, we expect to have safety and immune response to data preliminarily in June. And we are also racing to start a large-scale phase. Okay, Dr. Kim, we're just having we a... We are racing to start a phase two and the efficacy trials uh, as early as July and August of so are we talking about, at that point, then, human trials? So recruiting individuals that you can begin to test the vaccine that you have on? Yes, we already have a phase one trial that's ongoing in human volunteer. Uh, that should have uh, reporting the data. And then how quickly... And also... Yes, no, please uh, carry on. Uh, in the efficacy trial, we will be targeting healthcare workers in the front line, and we will look to determine the true efficacy of the vaccine in that setting. So just to give me a sense of timing here, how quickly do you think you could be administering this vaccine to frontline workers in the healthcare sector? Well, as part of that large-scale trial, we hope to start that in July of the summer. And wow. once that uh, is proven to be effective in a more widely basis, uh, as early as uh, late winter or early next year. Okay, so we're still talking about a timeline that comes or kicks in around 2021 to get this um, out to market. Talk to me about finances here, money. 
production, what it takes to go from the stage that you're at now, where you're potentially talking about using this on healthcare workers, to actually scaling up if you find that you have a successful vaccine? What more is required? Well, Inovio has been preparing for success in the clinical trials. So we have been scaling up our manufacturing of our vaccine. Uh, initially, about 1 million doses uh, for healthcare workers, emergency use, uh, but also up to hundreds of millions of doses potential starting next year. So that takes a huge uh, endeavor in scaling up of our current manufacturing process, automations, uh, everything that we are preparing for right now. Dr. Kim, we are going to leave it there because we are having some technical issues and I'm worried that people can't hear what you're saying. We will get you back very soon to talk about progress and um, keeping our fingers crossed that you have a successful vaccine there in the works. Dr. Joseph Kim speaking there. So thank you so much and uh, stay safe and thank you to your team for the hard work. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But coming up, meet Spot, who's helping healthcare workers and going out on patrol. Should we be thankful or a little bit terrified or a bit of both? I'll speak to the maker next. Let's keep Singapore healthy. For your own safety and for those around you, please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. You're looking at Spot, the robotic dog, on patrol in a park in Singapore, encouraging people very politely there. That definitely wasn't barking orders. Encouraging people to social distance. It's a pilot program which started last Friday. Spot, just to be clear, not fully autonomous. There's a remote operator behind the scenes. And you can see some of the reactions that Spot's getting. While it can't enforce measures, a parks officer which accompanies Spot can. Spot also has medical uses that we'll explore in a moment. He's the brainchild of Boston Dynamics chairman Mark Raybert, who joins us now. Mark, fascinating to have you with us. A very polite robot, I have to say, but unique at this moment if you're trying to enforce social distancing rules. You know, Spot has been doing a great job there in Singapore, also here in Boston, dealing with some of the COVID uh, crisis situation. You wanted it to be more of a platform that allows for data analysis. To your point as well, it's being used for telemedicine. Just give me a sense of some of the other uses that we're seeing and the the sort of data that's being analysed as Spot moves around and how that's happening. Yeah, we designed Spot as a platform, which means you can add software and you can add hardware to it. Um, It's being used uh, in a variety of situations where we're trying to uh, protect people from dangerous exposure. So one of them is electric power utility facilities where there's some dangerous places to go and they can't do inspections without powering the whole thing down. It's used on construction sites. Construction sites aren't usually all that dangerous, but these days where managers can't travel, uh, it's easier to send the robot to do inspections and uh, collect data. And uh, we, we have been doing testing at a nuclear facility where, of course, the risk of radiation exposure uh, is a potential problem. And all kinds of facilities, refineries, LNG plants, anywhere where there's a complex environment uh, and there's a bunch of sensors to read or measurements to make. Um, you asked what kind of data. Uh, Boston, um, 
spot has a variety of visual sensors that lets it navigate the space it's in, uh, but we've also made it so you can put specialized sensors on its back, either cameras to do reading of gauges, uh, sniffers that can measure gas leaks and things like that. Uh, and, you know, people are cooking up new ways of uh, attaching sensors and collecting data all the time. You know, there will be a lot of people watching this going, oh, my goodness, the robots are coming. How much of this data could possibly be stored? Can it identify a person? Can these kind of metrics be attached and applied to a platform like Spot the Robot? Because as always with these things, there's a concern about privacy. Right. Well, we're taking, you know, a very serious uh, approach to that, those issues. Uh, you know, our agreements with all our customers uh, provide limitations on being used for surveillance or harming people and things like that. Uh, you know, but I think what it comes down to is the balance between opportunities and risks. There's so many opportunities, you know, COVID, the, the you know, the horrible thing it is, has shown what some of those opportunities are to uh, protect the work, the healthcare workers and even the patients from being uh, from unnecessary exposure. And I think it, in the end, it's going to be a balance of uh, the opportunities for doing new mm. and great things against uh, some risks. How far away are we from seeing some kind of remote vital sign exploration? Because that would be brilliant for healthcare workers on the front lines right. just to be able to use a robot to assess these things. Well, you know, here in Boston at the Brigham's and Women's Hospital, we're doing testing where we're screening uh, potential COVID patients. And rather than have a doctor or nurse make direct contact with the patient, Spot goes there with some equipment that can uh, assess their situation. In the first days of doing that, all we did was communicate and talk to the patient through the ro remote robot. Now we're doing some vital measurements. We're doing uh, temperature and respiration rate, but we're working on uh, heart rate and oxygenation, blood oxygenation, which are really important measures for doing triage on a patient. And all these things will be done without any contact, no contact with a human, no actually direct contact with the robot, except the robot will be nearby. Yeah, it's very clever. I've got a couple more questions. How much does a robot cost? How many can you produce a year? And the final question, because it occurred to me when I saw it, what happens if someone tries to grab this robot and steal it? Does it have an alert system or a GPS inside it that you can track it? Uh, let me let me start. So right now we're building a thousand of the robots, wow. and I think we have something like 120 of them out in customers' hands, some number like that. Uh, we're not we're not publicly saying what the cost is just yet. Uh, we're in an early adopter phase of the program, so it's each engagement is its own thing. But pretty soon we'll have published uh, prices for the robot. You know, in terms of uh, grabbing the robot. Uh, you know, someone coming and grabbing the robot and knowing where it is via GPS. You know, those are complicated issues. Uh, it really gets back to your first question about privacy. Uh, we could, you know, one could implement a solution where we know where the robot is all the time and where there's an uplink and we could disable the robot. On the other hand, that gets into the space of, uh, you know, potentially invading the privacy of the user. So it's always a balancing act uh, 
how you uh, approach these questions. Yeah, that, I've just realized that is a, I was sort of half joking there, but it is a, a real problem, actually. There is a, a theft risk here. I think I have a system inside that gives an electric shock, perhaps, to the person who, uh, who tried to steal it. But that's the way my mind works. Uh, yeah, we don't, we don't have any plan to do that. We're trying no. to keep, uh, you know, spot from, uh, from anything like that. Do you think this is a pivot point where we see more robotic use? I mean, we see it in manufacturing already, but just in light of what the new normal for the future holds, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's for telemedicine, do you think this is a pivot point in time where we see an acceleration of this kind of use of robotics? I, I really think it could be. You know, in mm. before COVID, um, we were... Uh, working with people who had situations where it was dangerous to expose people people to various situations, like I mentioned, uh, you know, checking for gas leaks and, uh, you know, un unpleasant places in refineries and things like right. that. But now it's on everybody's mind uh, what, the, uh, what the need is. You know, one of the things we're looking at is decontaminating uh, large spaces like, like a, a metro station or an arena, you know, because people are going to want to go back to public places and be able to do it safely. And uh, the task of decontaminating on a regular basis, maybe every night, those kinds of places, uh, is you know a, a, big, a big thing to do. And you don't really want people out there doing it because they'd all have to be suited up in PPE. So the robot's a great use. I think yeah. we're gonna, we've gotten a lot of inbound requests for situations like that. And I think it could open the door to a big, uh, big growth in, in this kind of work. Yeah, our current perception of what a dangerous situation in has altered quite dramatically in the space of a few months. Mark, stay in touch, please. Yeah. Um, fantastic work, and uh, okay, we'll look to see your progress. Mark Raybert, the, okay, the chairman of Boston Dynamics. Stay safe, sir. Thank you. All right, up next. Playing one state off against another, Elon Musk discusses packing up his business in California and shipping it across to Texas. Find out the details next. Welcome back to First Move. New virus outbreaks in South Korea, China and Germany point to the risks countries take as they begin to reopen their economies. But as we weigh the costs, former White House advisor Gary Cohn reminded Crestmeans Business last night that it's impossible to eliminate risk entirely. We did not start with a riskless environment. And I, and I like to remind people that. You know, if you go back pre-crisis, we had risks to our economy, risk to our healthcare, risk to our culture every day. When we got up and left our house, we had a risk. So we need to balance what risks are acceptable to return to. We're, we're never going to get to a risk-free, riskless environment to re-enter. Finding the new normal. That was Gary Cohn, the former director of the White House National Economic Council. Tesla CEO Elon Musk is one business owner ready to run the risk of reopening, but it's put him on a collision course with the state of California. Local authorities say his factory cannot fully restart if it puts place until it puts in place more safety measures. Claire Sebastian joins us on this story. Claire, he even had a presidential tweet. President Trump said, look, get this uh, factory reopened. Obviously, he's having issues with local authorities. It pits it against, to some degree, the leadership of California. Where does that leave Elon Musk now? 
Well, so the latest that has happened, uh, Julia, is that Alameda County, which is where the Fremont factory, uh, Tesla's main uh, car producing factory, is located, has said that if that you know Elon Musk and Tesla update their prevention and control plan for the Fremont site with a few additional safety measures, uh, and if the public health data remains stable or improves, they can start to, and I quote, augment their minimum business operations this week and, and look towards a possible reopening next week. Now, that raises a few questions. We don't know exactly which additional safety measures they're being asked to put in place. We don't know how this is affected by the fact that Elon Musk has supposedly already restarted production. He said that he was doing so on Monday in defiance uh, of the county's rules. So we don't know if he's now going to put that on pause as some kind of compromise and wait until next week. Alameda County says they're going to be working with the Fremont uh, Police Department to to make sure that Tesla is in compliance with these uh, physical distancing and and safety measures uh, that they want in place. So this is sort of a, a development in the situation, but it does feel like the, the, the dispute over this factory might be coming to an end, might be reaching a point we haven't heard yet, though, from Elon Musk and what he thinks about this. The question is, what does the future hold? He can be tempestuous, but he can also make big decisions very quickly. And we know there were overtures from other states saying, hey, we're open for business and we would welcome Tesla. What more on that, Claire? Yeah, so this has ignited a lot of interest. We know already, by the way, that that Tesla was looking uh, to potentially build extra operations outside of California. Uh, Musk tweeted in early March that he was looking for somewhere in central USA to build the Cybertruck, that futuristic truck that he unveiled last year. Uh, And Texas has now come out that the governor said to a, a local TV station that he had spoken to Elon Musk and that he is apparently very frustrated with California and genuinely very interested in Texas. And we've also heard Julia from the governor of Colorado who is interested in this. So, so a lot of interest out there. Yes, and I'm sure that interest is going nowhere, quite frankly, Claire Sebastian. Definitely, I watch this space, but it always is where Elon's concerned. Thank you for that. And that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.